we are your people. We are your children. Lord, don't leave us in the dark. Give us insight. Give us understanding. In the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to speak to you today about living in these revolutionary times. But I, I want to give you a unique context and history that I haven't done in many years that I help understand where we are today and even this body, where it stands today. So we'll start in 1 Chronicles, the 12th chapter. And as we're turning there, I want to remind you of the times in the New Testament where Jesus rebuked religious leaders like Matthew 16 because they didn't understand the times. He said you can predict the weather, but you don't understand the times. The Messiah is here. The long-awaited Messiah is here with his ministry confirmed by signs, wonders, and miracles, and you don't get it. You don't understand what time it is. In Luke 19, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. He says, if you had only known the time of your, of your visitation. I don't know if you've ever been in a meeting, maybe a gathering with some people, and there's someone there that people are talking to, and you don't know who the person is. When they leave, you find, oh, that was so-and-so. If I only knew, I, I wanted to ask that person. I always wanted to meet that person, but you didn't know. Or you find out after an event that the event you've been waiting for for years just passed through your city, if I only knew. Well, this is a much greater consequence. Jesus is saying, because you missed the time of the Messiah, destruction is going to come. And that's what happened with the city of Jerusalem destroyed, the temple destroyed, never rebuilt to this day. First Chronicles chapter 12, beginning in verse 23. It begins to talk about the numbers of the divisions of the armed troops who came to David in Hebron to turn the kingdom of Saul over to him according to the word of the Lord. And now it begins to list the troops. The men of Judah bearing shield and spear were 6,800 armed troops. Of the Simeonites, mighty men of valor for war, 7,100. Skip down, verse 29, of the Benjamites, the kinsmen of Saul, 3,000, whom the majority had to that point kept their allegiance to the house of Saul. Of the Ephraimites, 20,800, mighty men of valor, famous men in their father's houses. Of the half-tribe of Manasseh, 18,000, who were expressed the name to come and make David king. And now look at this, of Issachar, Men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. 200 chiefs and all their kinsmen under their command, and it goes on with the rest. It doesn't say that they were specially trained in battle. It doesn't say that they were mighty men of war. It says they understood the times and knew what Israel should do. Friends, as God's people, we're not going to know everything. We're in this world, and, and we rely on God, and we trust Him, and there are many things that happen we don't understand why we prayed for this one, and they weren't healed, why things went a certain way, and all this. There are many things we don't understand, but we should understand what time it is in the world and what we as God's people should do. 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul writing to the, Th the Thessalonians, and it says, when, when everyone's saying peace and safety, sudden destruction is going to come. And, and, and the Lord's coming is going to be like a thief in the night. He says, but it, it won't be like a thief for you. That's right. That day won't overtake you as a thief, because a thief comes in the night, and you are children of the day. Right. You are children of the light. And in the book of Isaiah, the 55th chapter, the prophet exhorts the people, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. There are times when God is moving and you, you must recognize it and seize the moment. As Zechariah 10.1 asked the Lord for rain at the time of latter rain. There's a season, there's a time and, and we must understand these things. And, and if we fail to, if we, we miss what's happening in history, if we miss what's happening in the world around us, if we look only through natural eyes, by the time we wake up to reality, it, it may be too late. 
Let me just give you an example from the 60s. And you know the old saying, if you remember the 60s, you weren't there. <laughs> so outwardly, this was a time of great rebellion, and it was. It was known for sex, drugs, rock and roll, true enough. Eastern religion, generation gap. And, and, and out of the 60s, many of the things that are the norm in our society today, they were birthed at that time. From the radical feminist expression that leads to abortion and other things, through the Stonewall riots that led to homosexual activism and the changing of the culture of the nation. Other things were birthed at that time that seemed radical, extreme, and ultimately became the norm. A massive cultural shift. In the year 2000, the psychologist David Myers pointed out that if you, if you fell asleep in the year 1960 and woke up in the year 2000, you'd wake up to the divorce rate doubled, teen suicide tripled, reported violent crime up four times, prison population up five times, children born out of wedlock up six times, people living together out of wedlock up seven times, just a cultural shift. And I was going through some things in a book I wrote in the year 2000, think, wow, from 2000 to 2020, the shift has been extreme. I want to read some quotes to you from the 1960s. Hang on. Whoa, I can't believe the sports, no, I'm just kidding. That's the only problem with having things on your phone is other stuff that comes up. Okay, here we go. Excuse me. Just building suspense, that's all. Okay, listen to this quote, 1967. William Ward Ayer, writing in a, a scholarly journal for Dallas Theological Seminary. It's called Preaching to Combat the Present Revolution. 1967. He said, if the Lord tarries, young men now preparing for the ministry will be preaching for at least 20 years in the most complex revolutionary period that has been seen in modern times. This revolution is not like the many political upsets of Europe and South America. Today's arising is world revolution. 1967. Bill Bright, in his book Revolution Now, wrote this, 1969. We live in the most revolutionary period of human history. Social band-aids and reform antiseptics give little hope for a cure or even an improvement. A revolution is needed. You can experience this revolution. In fact, you can help bring it to pass. And then Tom Skinner, 1970. I am convinced America is at her crisis hour. Revolution is inevitable. It's just a matter of which faction is going to prove strongest and will win out in the end. I believe most Americans are so apathetic that they will just sit back and go to whoever wins the struggle which is largely what happened. And many Christians, seeing what was happening in the world around them, thought, this is it, this is the end, we're out of here any second. What was the best-selling book at that time? How Lindsay's Late Great Planet Earth. That was all the rave in the Christian world. And I knew we got saved 1971. There's not much time left. We are right at the final seconds of the clock, and Jesus is going to come any moment. And I, I, I still remember the service. I showed up on a Sunday morning. And it was, it was probably now into 72, maybe, maybe it was either spring or fall, when, when you changed the time. Whatever it was, I showed up for Sunday school an hour early. <laughs> so you had a small number of people for Sunday school on a Sunday morning, and then the Sunday service. I got there an hour early, pulled up Sunday, nobody's there. What's the first thought? I missed the rapture. I missed the way we were thinking. Nobody was thinking that we're going to be here 50 years later. Are you kidding me? I was 16 when I got saved. Our oldest granddaughter is 19 in college. We were not thinking like that. Obviously, we missed something. Obviously, we misinterpreted what was happening. That was obviously not the last great falling away or the final rebellion. But the sad thing 
is, is that in the midst of the rebellion and the worldliness and the wickedness of the society, there was a deep spiritual search going on. I mean, we would literally get high and talk about spiritual things and speculate about spiritual things. It was just in the air. I know people that got saved in the midst of LSD trips. They encountered the Lord and were instantly sober. Something was going on. There was a search. There was, there was a looking for the meaning of life. Why are we here? What's the purpose of it all? Yes, there was some of the rage that you see today, some of the anger that you see today, but there was a, a lot that was going on beneath that with people looking and asking questions about the meaning of life and the purpose of life. And there's gotta be more than the American dream. And Satan certainly understood the moment and seized it and, and, and went the way of the flesh and, and all of these other seductions. But in the midst of this, God began to move. And in the midst of the counterculture revolution, the Jesus revolution was birthed. Amen. I mean, Time Magazine, April 1966, front cover, Is God Dead? Five years later, June 71, front cover, the Jesus revolution. If you, if you find that article online and, and read, it's, it's still stirring to read today about what God was doing and, and radically saving these hippies and rebels all around the world, not just in America, but around the world. The more I traveled the world and shared testimonies, the more I heard similar testimonies to mine, all within a couple years, all around the world. But even then, the church did not fully understand what was happening. Even then, the church, most churches in America, didn't grasp that this is an unusual harvest. There were very few spiritual fathers. There were very few wineskins, new wineskins for the new wine, very little discipleship. And because of that, many, many came to faith and were in the faith for a few years and then fell away. In my own life, saved in 71, by the late 70s, early 80s, I had, I had left my first love in certain ways. I was a devoted, strong believer in other ways. Our family was, was active on the front lines of, of helping the needy, sponsoring refugees right in our home, caring about the poor in our community. We had a pro-life mentality and understanding, committed in many ways. As I was getting my doctorate at New York University, people knew me as a committed believer, but the early devotion passion I had, I had left a lot of it. And, and I was skeptical of some of my Pentecostal roots and trying to get away from them. I, I couldn't because of the word, but, but I wanted to. And folks helped pray me back into fire and passion. And in 1982, God began to bring me through repentance and showed me how spiritual pride had, had entered into my life. And I began to cry out to him and seek him. And the more I would pray, the more he would reveal things. You know when God's bringing you through repentance, you think you've done repentance. He goes, no, that's the first layer. <laughs> that's just the anesthesia before we get to the heavy stuff. It's like month after month, God unpeeling things in me, deepening my heart for him and my love for him and my desire for him. And, and then the spirit moved on me and showed me I'd be preaching a message in my church, which was barely charismatic. No one was ever filled with the Spirit. We never saw manifestations of the gifts of the Spirit. He showed me I'd preach a message and the Holy Spirit would fall. I was down at another church from the one I was saved in. And then we would have like a Pentecost, an outpouring of the Spirit. November 21st, 82, I, I preached the message. The pastor had just stepped down. I was asked to preach that Sunday. The Spirit fell dramatically. Repentance broke out. People baptized in the Spirit. It, it, it was a wonderful, glorious, extraordinary season. It lasted a little over three months, and then ultimately leaders divided over what was happening, and we had to move on. And, and as I was praying, this is the spring of 83. My best friends now have turned against me because they kind of stayed back and rejected what the Holy Spirit was doing. I remember I was on my face praying in my study. And I was gripped and overwhelmed in intercession. And the Holy Spirit said to me, it's 1983. The Holy Spirit said to me, you will be in the midst of a revival that will touch the world. Now you have to understand, at that point, I'm finishing my doctorate in Semitic languages at New York University. I'm relatively unknown except a few churches where I've spoken or ministered. And I've just been kind of rejected by my friends and the church we were part of, and now we're in a new fellowship. It seemed completely crazy and outlandish. I remember saying to myself, you have completely gone off the deep end. 
You have completely gone off the deep end. But the more I would pray, the more the Spirit would bear witness. And when I'd share with others, the Spirit would bear witness. And this became the consuming desire. I must see revival. I must see outpouring. America needs a move of the Spirit, and somehow I know I'm going to be in the thick of it. And I would share that with my closest friends. You know, when the hunger is in your heart, you, you can't live without the breakthrough. And you feel like, I can't go another day until God breaks through. And you think, yeah, but I have to live like that for years before the breakthrough comes. You wake up each day hungry and thirsty. Oh, God. You're like, like Jacob in, in, in Genesis, the, the 32nd chapter. I won't let you go until you bless me. And you wake up the next day with the same burden. And you look at the world around you and you see the darkness and the great needs. Oh, God. I lived like that for years. God began to open up doors in ministry, called me to leave my job and teach in Christ for the nations, which had a branch on Long Island. And as I would travel and preach, we'd have a series of meetings for several days. I always wonder, is God going to move? Is this going to be the place? Is this going to be the place where something breaks out? Something happens? And then I began to write on these themes, and God connected me with Leonard Ravenhill, a great champion of revival for the previous generation. Author of the book, Why Revival Tarries. He connected me with David Wilkerson and Times Square Church. And these were just signs he's going to do what he promised. We're going to see it. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And then, of course, you know the story. God used Steve Hill to ignite a revival in Pensacola. Of course, just part of a larger thing God was doing around the world and, and part of many other people praying and the Holy Spirit moving. And Steve and I had known each other through Leonard Ravenhill. Next thing I'm hearing reports, the thing I've been praying for for years, the thing I've been longing for, the thing I've been knowing is going to happen, is happening. Next thing God calls me to be part of the team there. That's how we're, we're here today. Some of us have known each other since then. And, and some of my friends would come from Long Island where I used to live. And, and they'd come and visit the revival in Pensacola. And I'd say, hey, you only have to get there an hour early. There's a side door you can come in as my friend. Your, your name will be on a list. Think of that. You only have to get there an hour early. <laughs> Instead of strolling in 20 minutes into a service. You see, what was the alternative? The alternative was to get there 13 hours early. Wow. As crowds did from around the world every week. And to get online at 6 in the morning. And to wait online until 6 p.m. when the building opened for the service to start at 7 p.m. To then be in a meeting that would go to 12 or 1 in the morning and then repeat and do the same the next day. And we'd get the reports of the people saved while standing on the line. Saved while driving by the building. I mean, real stories, real testimonies, real changed lives. And old friends of mine would come from Long Island and they'd say, Mike, you told us this was going to happen. You told us this was going to happen. You know, like Joseph, when he was 17, he had the dreams, but he didn't have all the wisdom, so he told too many people. That's how it was with me in those days. I just told so many people, I know it's going to happen. I'm going to be in the middle of it. And we watched as people came from 130 nations, touched, took the fire back around the world. And we watched as people like Ben that just shared before, a dentist with a successful practice, married with a bunch of kids, leaves everything, comes to the ministry school, and then serves in Thailand, what, almost 20 years? We just watched people do this. Business people dissolve their businesses, come to the school. I, I remember one man had a building company, he dissolved it, and he and his wife went on their first mission trip as great-grandparents. And then went to serve in what would have been East Germany before. Just upheaval, uprooting, and people coming and lives being dramatically shaken and impacted. And, and the stories we hear week in, week out were so dramatic and amazing. And especially in the schools, because we pray. And, and, and the, the kids in the local high schools, between your high schools, they pray with tears. They'd weep and they'd cry out, Jesus, save our schools. And you, you just begin to weep as you hear them praying for their peers. I remember about 40, 50 kids from one of the local high schools got up to testify one time. And, and God had been moving in the school with so many kids, they'd been dramatically touched. And I met with the superintendent of schools of Escambia County in the fall of 1997 to say, and revival began in, in June of 95. I asked him, has there been a tangible impact on the schools? 
because I was going to be dealing with some critics and skeptics. He said, oh yeah, I can tell you firsthand. This is superintendent of schools. So there's one high school, and God was moving so powerfully among the kids that during lunch break, instead of lunch, they would, they would have a prayer meeting. They would just gather out in the field and pray together. And, and the Holy Spirit fell. And, and one of the kids was completely overwhelmed by the Spirit. It never happened to him. And he's up there talking. He, he looked kind of like a nerdy kid. Kid would have been more at home behind a computer than baseball field or something like that. Certainly looked like some wild kid all tattooed and pierced and everything. He looked like a kid that just wanted to be a nice, obedient kid. And he begins to share what happened, that he got completely overwhelmed by the Spirit. And they had to basically carry him into class. So they, they carry him into class and put him down in a seat. But he was so overwhelmed, he began to slide out of his seat. And the teacher thought, well, you're just messing around. So she said, all right, I want you guys to carry him to the nurse's office. Grabs the shoulders, the other grabs the feet. Unsaved kids, as they're walking down the hall, they're all getting hit by the spirit. You know, we're hearing these kinds of stories. And, you know, Steve would say, one of these days, we're going to get a report that, that the spirit's following the whole school. It seemed like you could just believe it. Crazy thing. People would leave the meetings thinking it was. Next thing everybody's laid out, people repenting and crying out. I mean, we hear this day in, day out for years. And as soon as I got to Pensacola, God spoke to me, raised up a ministry school, which was Brownsville Revival School of Ministry, and then became Fire School of Ministry. And then Fire School of Ministry, Fire Church was birthed. And then it was birthed not to be better than any other church, not because we were special, but we had a particular DNA. We had a particular call, we had a particular burden, and we were kind of spoiled by revival. Again, not better than anybody else, but just with a particular background. And when we live in certain things and experience the fire, so you just can't go back to go church as normal. I don't say that, again, compared to anyone else, just your own experience. But in the midst of this, in the midst of the revival, in the midst of the outpouring, in the midst of the stories and testimonies that were just amazing, God began to stir my heart in 1999. And that's when the revolution theme was birthed. That as surely as there was a counterculture revolution in the 60s, there would be a gospel-based Jesus revolution, a gospel-based moral and cultural revolution that we would experience. God began to speak to me about it. Began to speak to me about my involvement in it. And I'm just sharing some personal things to encourage you. That's the only reason. He began to speak to me about being on national radio, talk radio. And, and that would tie in with this whole message. And at that time, it was all completely outlandish. There's no more possibility of that happening than, than me becoming an astronaut. But I couldn't shake this. And it began to stir my heart about revolution in the church. That more of the same would only produce more of the same. You know, if we keep just trying the same method, the same, we're going to get the same results. How many of you have been astounded to wake up and weigh yourself each day to find out that eating the same way has not yielded change? <laughs> oh, I can't believe it. Yeah, you should believe you're weighing the same because you've been living the same. We just go to do the same thing again. We'll have another service, we'll have another this, we'll have another, and, and the world's going to change around us. It doesn't happen like that. Something has to change in us. There must be revolution in the church and understanding of what it means to, to be the people of God and live as people of God in this world. Yeah. Being the church and not just going to church. Okay. I mean, we see America shaking right now. People have taken protests to the street, taking their cause to the street. Obviously, there's violence and looting and vandalism mixed in. But others also passionate about a message. And, and suddenly, the nation takes notice. And we think we'll just gather and have a lovely service and we'll shake the nation. No, we've got to live this thing out. We gotta carry this out in our lives. So the revolution theme was birthed in me. And, and, it, and it, it spread through the school. 
and begin to touch others in the revival. Not a revolution of anger or hatred or intimidation or violence, but a revolution of the spirit of, of Jesus radical saying, hey, I, I take this seriously. I believe this when Jesus says, leave everything and follow me. I, I believe this when he said, if you love father and mother more than me, your son and daughter more than me, you're not worthy of me. The students even had it as the motto of the school, by life or by death. Not because we had some martyr complex, but we took seriously what Paul said in Philippians 1.20, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Then the next verse for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That just seemed normal. Lord, we've got to live this out. And God stirred my heart to write the book Revolution and then gave us this absolutely preposterous vision to print and give away 100,000 copies of the book. The book was going to come out September 1st. September 2nd was this event that our friends Blue Angle and Cheon were leading called The Call, The Call DC. Organizers said, you've only been working on it nine months, you'll have no more than 50,000 people, it's not possible to get more than that. Instead, over 300,000 young people show up for prayer and fasting, six in the morning to six in the evening. Anybody here that was at that event? Look at that, front row and beyond. Isn't that amazing? You know, I'm not exaggerating. And here, we've been talking about revolution thing. We've been talking about shaking the nation, this, this opportune moment. We have the largest group from anywhere in America, 700 people on 15 buses coming up from Pensacola. The whole thing was an extraordinary scene. The largest gathering of Christian young people in American history, as far as I know. Crying out, fasting, praying together. I got up and brought the revolution message. We had 100 of our students standing behind me on the platform, crying out. We cried out to God together, made the proclamation, let, let Hollywood know, let the media know, let the White House know, we're here to start a Jesus revolution. This is burning in us, the reality. You know, in the books, I remember I looked in the eyes of the students and said, I'm not dreaming. This is gonna happen. And then unexpected things happened. Terrible split that we lived through, and the pain of that, and, and, and that kind of forces things to be birthed, and, and now we're fired, and, and, and we relocate, and here we are, and for what purpose, and what's God doing, but, but we've always known, please hear me, we've always known that there was a purpose in us being We've always known that there was a purpose in the existence of fire. And let me say it again, this is not a matter of comparing to anyone else. There are plenty of amazing congregations in, in the region here that do a lot of things better than we do. It's a matter of calling. It's a matter of purpose. It's just like the thumb is not better than the pinky, but they have distinct callings and functions. And we were birthed out of revival. We were birthed out of a, a burden to see a Jesus revolution. And here are our, our threefold emphasis on the wall, loving God, building community, changing the world. So that's what flows out of this. And, and I said in the Revolution book that we're gonna see radical change coming. It's either gonna be from above or from below, but it's coming. And, and we, look, when I was saying those words and writing those things in the year 2000, none of us, None of us were imagining that the Supreme Court would redefine the meaning of marriage. None of us were imagining that. None of us were imagining that an Olympic hero like Bruce Jenner would become Caitlyn and, and win Glamour Magazine's Woman of the Year Award. None of us were imagining drag queens reading to toddlers in libraries with the encouragement of the American Library Association. I'm just saying this to speak of cultural shift, cultural change. None of us are imagining that. And, and here we are, all these years later. I remember 1993 distinctly, as George H.W. Bush was defeated by Bill Clinton, and thinking, boy, if we had four more years of, of, of Bush, we could get one more con conservative justice, and we could overturn Roe v. Wade. Heard that before? Here we are in the year 2020, talking about some of the same things, still so close to just this, just that. We're still putting our trust in a political system to bring about the change that only the church can bring about. That's right. That's only the church through the gospel and the power of the spirit. Yeah. 
Doesn't mean we're uninvolved with the political system, but it means we do not put our trust in it. Yeah. So I've, I've been living with this same intense burden over the years. And then when God called me to be on, on radio, and then when folks were putting the show together as I was on, and, and they were gonna expand me onto different networks, they said, well, let's, let's get you a new introduction as you're going national, beyond local stations. And how do they, they say, how about introducing you every day as your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution? Just listening to the show, that's the hard thing, guys. That works. <laughs> so every day when I'm on the air, it's 12 years now, Daily Talk Radio. Every day when I'm on the air, I, I'm reminded. And then here we come into 2020. And you thought, okay, these are volatile times. Whether you voted for Donald Trump or not, everyone agrees that these are volatile times and that he's a volatile leader. That if there is no storm, he will create a storm. It's just the way he is, for better or worse. We come into 2020 deeply divided as a nation with the impeachment hearings. Remember that? That was this year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember that? One? If you said at the beginning of the year, that'll be a small news item. <laughs> that will virtually be forgotten. Who would have believed that? Really? But that was massive, the impeachment hearings, and then the acquittal by the Senate, and the massive division in our nation, just politically, and then ideologically, but then that's completely forgotten because of the virus. Come on, we're, we're what, 125,000 lives lost at this point, thereabouts? And then the economy, who knows the shape that'll be in? And even having to announce the service, social distancing, and you know, many just participating at home because it's better for you now. Who would have thought that the virus and the economic shutdown and things we've never experienced canceling of whole sports leagues and Olympics being delayed and things we've never ever lived through as a, as a people, who would have thought that that would become the minor news? Yeah. And, that, and that the killing of George Floyd would, would lead to a national outrage and that others would take that legitimate outrage and then use it for their purposes. And, and let me just say something here to a largely white audience at this moment, or white congregation at this moment. Being on talk radio, listening, having lots of black friends speaking into my ear, many white Christians that care, that are loving, that don't have a racist bone in their body, hear black lives matter, and their response is just about all lives matter. And, and then we see the radicality of the Black Lives Matter movement. We see the Marxist ideology. We see their career-affirming leadership and their attack on the nuclear family and even their anti-Israel, anti-Semitic history. And we say, I can't identify with a movement like that. Why can't we just say all lives matter? And the simple answer in the black community would be because for centuries we felt as if you don't think black lives matter. They, our perception has been we can get killed, we can get lynched, anything can happen to us, the legal system be against us, and you don't care. So it is important for us as lovers of Jesus and lovers of our neighbor to loudly proclaim yes, 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 Black Lives Matter. And yes, we want to be sensitive to things you've experienced that we may not have experienced because of our own upbringing and culture. Yes, if you love Jesus, that has to be your heart. At the same time, we can differ with a movement that's been hijacked. You hear what I'm saying? We can stand for justice. We can be outraged against inequality where it exists. We can say, let's look. Hey, look. Just think of this for a minute. If you look at our history, those that, that we've got folks here that, that do ministry counseling where you go deep into people and help them. You know, maybe you were traumatized as a kid by some. Well, there's the trauma of history, American history. That's got to be recognized. That, that shouldn't be a surprise. So we of all people should have open ears and say, we stand for justice. We stand for righteousness. We stand for those who, who this world 
does not have as many opportunities and benefits as it, as it does for others. Amen. And, and we repudiate the extremism of a movement. So my black friends said, just make sure your proclamation that black lives do matter is louder than your condemnation of the Black Lives Matter movement. But here's the deal, friends. Here's the deal. What we're living in right now, 2020, right here, in front of our eyes, not prophesying, not what could come, not what the Holy Spirit showing us. Right now, these are the most radical revolutionary times in our nation, in certain ways in our history. That's right. Do you hear what I'm saying? Yeah. Many considered 1968 to be the most volatile year in modern American history. So remember, the 1960s, you have the cultural shifts with the, with birth control coming in in 1960, birth control pill, that changed a lot of things with sexual promiscuity. Supreme Court removing organized public prayer from school in 62, organized public Bible reading removed in 63. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech challenging the status quo, the March on Washington in 63, and then the assassination of John F. Kennedy in 63. Those old enough to remember, remember the unsettling feeling, everything shook, everything was uneven. And you know, just the, the, the beginning of, of seeing things on TV, and there's the report, it was, it was not like the cell phone generation where the most crazy thing happening in Indonesia right now, you see three seconds later. This was jarring, and the Vietnam War, and young people going off to war, mandatory draft, going off to die for what? So this is all the shaking. 1964, the Beatles come to America. So what was the big deal with that? It's just another part of a major cultural shift in the bringing in of other influences. 1967, you know, Monterey Pop, first rock festival. I was just looking at a documentary on that the other day, just looking at the beginning, the flower people, California dream, and there was, I was thinking, man, it's a little different than the protest today. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm thinking of writing an article, this is not your grandparents' flower children. I mean, yeah, there was anger and rebellion a lot, but there was, there was kind of an innocence and looking for more. You think, oh, I'm just so co-opted by the enemy. And people are going to have a human being and just the vibes. They're just going to have vibes of peace and bring peace to the world. You had hippies and yippies that were going to gather in front of the Pentagon and levitate. <laughs> then 1968, massive upheaval. Communist aggression. Prague, Czechoslovakia now falls to communism. The main revolution in France sweeps through the country, almost overthrows the leadership of, of Charles de Gaulle. Massacre in Mexico breaks confidence in the police and the authorities. Remember the Olympic Games, some of our athletes are the Black Panthers, so they get banned from professional sports for life after that. But the event, the pivotal event, the shaking event in America was the assassination of Martin Luther King. And then riots all over our cities. And then not long after that, the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy, who was considered an ally. And now he's gone. There's tremendous upheaval and shame. And in that sense, it was the most traumatic year in our modern history. And in 69, Woodstock and the Stonewall riots and so many other things burst out of that. And America's literally never been the same. And now we are on the precipice of another massive cultural shift. And, and it is a cultural shift of a radical left. Again, please separate the question of justice, the question of police brutality, the affirmation that black lives matter. Separate that, which we, we are standing together as one for those causes. Separate that from the radical Marxist ideology that wants to destroy America as we know it. And listen, listen, it, it's not just statues of Abraham Lincoln and Thomas Jefferson that are going to topple. It's, if you want to have some physical image, it's crosses in front of church buildings. This is ultimately an anti-Christ move. This is ultimately an anti-God, anti-authority move. And, and, and listen, I have an article that's going live today in different places. Why the riots now? 
And I'm going to get totally back to spiritual to close this message out. But I, here we are. We're living in the midst of this. Amen? Why is it that with a number of high-profile killings, blacks killed by police, unarmed, during the Obama administration, we had some riots, we had some protests, but nothing happened like this. Why now did something go national? You say, well, there's the video footage and that's clear. That's true, but there was video footage of some of these other horrible killings. And by the way, this is not Obama versus Trump. I'm not making that statement. Why, why weren't there national riots? Why weren't monuments being pulled down then? And with the killing of George Floyd, there was instant national outrage. Christian leaders across the country speaking out that normally would President Trump immediately saying, this is horrible, we need Department of Justice and FBI to investigate this. And there, there have also been major prison reforms that have helped major, many black Americans. Historic aid for black colleges that's happened in recent years. I mean, positive that why this level of outrage now? So part of it is understandable, part of it's like built and built and built and finally exploded. But you have to realize this, this is being exploited. This is being exploited for larger purposes. And it has nothing to do with being Republican or Democrat. It has nothing to do with being pro-Trump or anti-Trump. It has to do with larger forces that want to destroy many things that we hold precious in America. I don't mean American history, I mean godly values. I mean biblical values. Listen, don't deceive yourself into thinking that this is just about something political. Yes, Black Lives Matter movement leaders have said, we have to get rid of Trump. That's what we're doing, we have to get rid of Trump. I understand that. no mystery there that that's their viewpoint. But you have to understand that the same mobocracy in the streets, the, the same mob rule, and if you say one word that we differ with, you get canceled. That's it, you are out, you are discarded that when it's done with monuments, it'll come our way. That's right. It's just the reality. It is, when you see a spirit of chaos and anarchy and lawlessness, that is not from above, it's from below. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why on the one hand, the church has to lead the way in doing what's right, and the church has to lead the way in racial reconciliation, yes. and the church has to do its best to address problems in the society and say, hey, Let's look for God's way, because God's ways are right and just and fair and good. But friends, I was, I was approached recently by a publisher who said, hey, we want to re-release your, your, your revolution book. If you could just update it, there's an event taking place, Jonathan Kahn leading a national repentance event. I'll be the king of others involved September this year in D.C. and then around the country. We'd like to release it in time for that. I thought, you gotta be kidding me, that's 20 years later. 20 years after the call, there's another event taking place in DC calling for prayer, repentance, and saying, basically, we get it right now, or you don't, you're not gonna recognize what this nation looks like. Think of all the warnings that have been sounded all these years, and so many people kind of sleeping their way through it, not taking it seriously. Here we are, so I, I picked up the book and started reading things, and stuff that we're saying, it's, it's at the door, it's near. I mean, now we're in it. The question is, what are we going to do as the church? I truly believe that God has given us great promises. I know what he spoke to me about a gospel-based moral and cultural revolution. In other words, a holy pushing back. I don't know how far it will go, but a holy pushing back. Not political, but spiritual, moral, cultural, gospel-based, spirit-filled, word-based, Jesus-glorified. Wrote to one of our grads, a powerful evangelist, the other day. I said, I keep seeing this army of evangelists all over America. He's taking the gospel to the streets and, and us taking on the mantle of evangelists and just sharing our faith. I, I remember a day when we were in high school together. John carried the guitar player and me, and we decided just to skip school. We went saved. We just leave as we frequently did. I think they kept the record of, oh, you're here today. 
And it was an absolute downpour. As we were walking, the, it just started pouring, drenching rain on us. And I remember we got so sick we had to cross this little stream to get, instead of walking around, we just walked through it because we were so soft already. It didn't matter. And it's kind of the picture of where we are now. Things have gone so far. There, there's, there's, we've got nothing to lose by going for it. We've got nothing to lose by taking a stand. We've got nothing to lose by saying, I'm a Jesus person. <coughs> I, stand for, I stand for these values. Yeah. This whole, I'm going to be careful if I say this. I could it's too late for that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, use wisdom. And don't intentionally be a troublemaker. But it's, it's, it's way time past. And I think it was Winston Churchill who said something to the effect of appeasement is like feeding a crocodile and hoping it eats you less. Yeah. And that's what we've done. Well, this list doesn't come my way. It didn't affect my job. And then you, your friend gets squeezed out. Well, I didn't get squeezed out. This one got rejected. Well, I didn't get rejected. We, we can't live like that. Yeah. Amen. Time to, in an unashamed way, say, we're here for Jesus. Yeah. And we have a mission. Yeah. And it's more radical than the most radical of the protesters because ours is a life-transforming, gospel-based, love-empowered mission. The revolutions we warned about, so much of it has unfolded, but now, unashamedly, unabashedly, we are in the midst of it now. Yeah. And you, you do not need to be a rocket scientist or a prophet to know that the closer we get to November, the more intense things are going to get. So here we are, called by Jesus, to be world-changing, cultural revolutionaries. That's, that's what the gospel is, right? Jesus yes. says, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of the nations. Of us. Let's go and change the world together. Amen. And the same mentality that you have on the mission field, God put me here for a reason. Ben, when you were there with your family in Thailand, your big question was not, how can we be financially successful here? The whole purpose of finances, the whole purpose of finances was to be able to stay on the field to reach the people there. Right. I'm going to leave my career as a dentist and go be financially successful in Thailand in the boondocks with my family. You don't do that. You go for a purpose. Well, you're here for a purpose. God didn't call me to Thailand. Well, if he called you to Concord or Charlotte, right. you have a mission. Right. And we need to just take, okay, here we are. Almost in our own clothes, almost like the secret group. Think of it like that. But Jesus said, Come here, shh, come here, come here, trust me, trust me, trust me, trust me, trust me. You know, like the way they do it in house churches in China in terms of persecution, they don't announce where the next meeting is going to be. They all pray. Mm -hmm. Is that? We've got an eyewitness test. I mean, this is about all the time, but sometimes they do. They don't announce where the next meeting is. So if you're an informer, they find out you're an informer. <laughs> you say, what if I'm not spiritual? God, God will communicate. And the people just show up at the meeting. How do you know the meeting? Well, the Spirit says that. In fact, Chris didn't announce this. I'm going to preempt. All future meetings at FIRE will not be announced. <laughs> <laughs> You show up ready for the family fellowship of hot dogs, like, oh, guess I didn't hear God. I must be my stomach there. No, I mean, really, we got to think, okay, what's the Lord telling? What's our sign? Yeah. Yeah. What are we supposed to do? Yeah. What, what are we here for? We're supposed to change the world. Come on, the terrorists, what, what do they have? Cell groups. Terrorists sell here. Terrorists sell there. They meet, they plot, they plan, and they bring their destructive ways. We have life-giving, life-transforming ways. Yeah. We have something the world doesn't have. And I, and I close here. In, in the 60s, there was this spiritual search beneath the surface, but the surface was so loud and so strong and so intense that the spiritual search was missed. When I saw Jimi Hendrix in concert the first time when I was 13 years old, Last thing on my mind was a spiritual search and the sound of his music and him, you know, playing Foxy Lady or Purple Haze. That was not about a spiritual search, but behind that, many were searching. It's just the loudness and the 
that the rebellion was missed. It's a brother I know who's a lawyer and left his law profession to just give himself to taking the gospel to the streets, taking prayer to the streets. And he lives in Minneapolis, where George Floyd died. So he's right in the thick of everything happening. He had been on a social media fast and didn't even know what was happening until people began to tell him. And what's interesting is when they were out on the streets in the midst of protests, as well as rioting and looting, and he said, you know what I saw? He said, I saw generations of fatherless kids. That's what I saw. There's, there is, beginning with the shaking and uncertainty in the nation, and then the shaking and uncertainty that the virus brought, and now the deep unsettling that's through the whole nation with riots and protests and what's coming next. There's a harvest, friends, the likes of which we may not see again for years. There is a potential to reach people who are not as distracted, who know there must be more, who are thinking about life and death more than they ever have. There is a unique opportunity now for us to reap a harvest that is unprecedented. And if the churches will be ready to make disciples, we can see this multiply. And we can see a Jesus movement greater than anything we saw in the 60s and 70s. And with more lasting fruit, it's either that or the destruction of the nation. So many of the things we've spoken about for years, here they are. Here we are. The question is, will you unconditionally say, Lord, here I am, send me this. And if you'll go to him every day, if you'll seek his face, if you go to leadership and hear it, how, what can I do, how can I serve? I'm burdened to do this, I'm burdened to do this. Let, let's release as many as we can. Let's, let's thrust out as many as we can. Let's look as if this is our mission field here, and what can we do to make an impact? And if every day you just pray, maybe you're home changing diapers with a kid, maybe you're working out, 12-hour shift in your job. Just start to say, Lord, here I am, use me. Or here I am, use me. Put your burden in my heart. Something will happen. You'll be led to pray. You'll be led to speak. A door will open. A divine opportunity. A social media connection. Something. Before you know it, we'll be kind of testimonies left and right about, God did this. You won't believe what happened. It's time, friends. It really is time. It's not just hype. It's not just me saying words. If it's ever been time in my entire lifetime to see harvest and to see a breakthrough, it really is now or never. Will we seize the moment? That's the question. Let's pray. Father, I've delivered what you put on my heart. And I know your people here are serious. And I know those watching online are serious. Lord, give us our marching orders for the next days. Bring us to repentance for areas of sin or complacency or compromise in our lives. Put a fresh hunger and thirst in our hearts for you to encounter you. May we experience a fresh outpouring of your spirit. May we walk with the anointing of evangelists, fishers of men, to share our faith. May we see a harvest wherever we live. In the midst of an ungodly cultural revolution, may we see a holy, glorious Jesus revolution. May we wake up tomorrow and be amazed and stunned with the things you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Lord.